Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Summer is finally here and many of us are looking forward to some downtime and holiday. So we decided to spend our last programme in this series of podcasts before we head for the beach, looking at summer reading and what to choose from a profusion of books on nature, wildlife, rewilding, ecology and the environment. And who better to do that with than Wainwright Prize winning author and friend of the pod, Ben McDonald. Ben, a very warm welcome back to Planet Pod and thanks so much for being with us. No, pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. And I'm delighted to welcome my second guest today, Rose Mallison, who's an analyst within the sustainability space and runs an eco book club at work. Rose, hello and welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So congratulations, Ben, on another beautiful book uh, coming hot on the heels of Rebirding, which won the Wainwright Prize for Global Conservation in 2020 and Orchard a Year in England's Eden. Cornerstones, Wild Forces That Can Change Our World has just been published by Bloomsbury. I've got an advanced copy here and I have to say it's stunning. Um, I do have to confess I haven't also not read all of it yet as only arrived on Friday. But I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it? So the book is about keystone species, ecosystem engineers, which are um, widely accepted um, ecological concepts in areas generally with replete ecosystems from the plains of Africa to the sort of the whale governed oceans of somewhere like Alaska, where we really understand what species do, not just passively swimming around or padding around in the sea or on the land, but actually actively shaping, enhancing and even creating the ecosystems in which other species live. Now, of course, we've depleted the planet so heavily on in, in most of the landmass and in most of the ocean, but particularly, of course, here in Britain, that we've removed most keystone species entirely. We've forgotten that others like cattle and horses now seen in a, in a domestic um, agricultural capacity um, used to be keystone species as wild animals. We've removed others, lynx, wolves, Entirely, we've completely forgotten that our coastlines used to be fertilised by pods of friendly grey whales and other species that now obviously still exist in our country in relative abundance, like honeybees, only exist in a fraction of the abundance and ecosystem function that they did 50 years ago, where you could hear hives from, from half a mile away. So I wanted to write a book that explained what these species do, why they're critical, why they're unique, to kick into touch some of the misinformed thinking that these are somehow the, the playthings of the rich, optional extras, gimmick animals, any of this nonsense. These are animals that profoundly shape landscapes, can provide climate resilience, protection against flooding. These are vital animals that we need to have back in our lives and in our society. You, you've identified a number of species in the book, um, you know, we and, and we have talked, to be fair, on the pod about beavers quite a bit, and we haven't talked about boars so much, but 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 I know that, you know, for example, if we look at those areas where there has been some rewilding, such as NEP, and I know Rose is off to NEP in a few weeks' time, um, where, where they've got, you know, pigs and wild boars as proxy species to help sort of turn up turn up the sort of things so we've talked a little bit about those but 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 we haven't ever talked about is is some of those keystone species like whales um you know why why is a whale so important and what is it that whales can do i mean apart from being magnificent and wonderful creatures what is it that they're doing in the seas and oceans that we are losing if they're not there well it, it, let's just begin with a brief historical perspective on whales until we exterminated 97 percent of the whales in the ocean there would have been in the Atlantic Ocean 
literally millions of whales. Uh, we would have had around our coast until the early Middle Ages um, grey whales. There was an entire grey whale migration down the British coast that went all the way down into the Mediterranean and then back up. We had right whales. They were the commonest whales. They were called right whales because they were right for whaling. They would float when they were speared, and they used to be extremely common around our coast. Now, the North Atlantic right whale and grey whale, uh, the grey whale in its entirety is functionally extinct. It's gone completely. But even into the 1920s, we have a thriving population of blue whales off Shetland. And when you go back to the 1760s, when Oliver Goldsmith was looking out to sea on Britain's west coast, he would see hundreds of sperm whales and fin whales chasing the mackerel run as it came inshore. These were common animals just because they were enormous. They were common because they had so much to feed on. So that reminds us how many whales we once had. So their ecosystem function has been lost. But what is truly remarkable is what the ecosystem function is to begin with. Whales effectively create the basis of life in the oceans. It's that profound. They do so by feeding at depth and they vector iron up to the surface in their feces. And by creating iron-rich content um, that is within the photic layer, uh, where the sunlight is able to permeate, that provides the very basis of phytoplankton growth. Phytoplankton leads to zooplankton. Zooplankton leads to small fish. Small fish lead to big fish. Big fish lead to even bigger fish. Even bigger fish lead to sharks. And even large sharks can still fall prey to the, to the master predator of the oceans, the orca. But none of that is possible without the great whales, the baleen whales. So if you think about a species like a puffin, for example, you might say, what's a whale got to do with a puffin? The answer is everything. Um, puffins depend upon sand eels. They are virtually obligate sand eel feeders. Sand eels depend upon zooplankton. Zooplankton depends upon phytoplankton. Phytoplankton depends upon whales. Now, you can have phytoplankton without whales, but nowhere near the abundance that you have when you have whales. And it was shown in the Southern Ocean when the blue whale recovered, everyone said, oh, the fisheries are going to decline. The krill numbers are going to go down because blue whales eat krill. And the opposite happened. Krill numbers went through the roof because the blue whales were able to not only eat their prey, but maintain and create the prey base for themselves by basically fertilizing the ocean. This is what whales do. They fertilize the ocean. And that's why, you know, they are the most important keystone species probably on the planet. But also the sheer amount of photosynthesis created at the phytoplankton le level by the presence of whales can have a very, very significant impact on slowing down climate change if we have enough whales back in our oceans. Blimey, Ben, I'm a bit kind of gobsmacked, really, because that is the most extraordinary explanation of a completely closed ecosystem loop that only does benefit and doesn't do harm. And, and if anything kind of typifies and, and epitomises some of the calls for action in your book, that, that has to be it. But, but, but how realistic is it for us to get the whales back? I mean, I know that you, you, you know, and in rebirding, you were passionate about bringing back some of those lesser known bird species. How easy will it be to us to get those, 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 those whales back into the system if we've, you know, decimated the population to 97% of its original size? Well, in a funny sort of way, it's easier and it's happening already because firstly, the whales, um, the oceans don't have any barriers. Secondly, whaling in most parts of the world has stopped. 
including in British waters. Thirdly, we are seeing more and more strandings. Now, you might think our oh, stranding is horrible. Of course, horrible events and horrible for the whaling question. But it's a little bit like if we start seeing more dead hedgehogs on our road. I'll be celebrating, not in some weird macabre sort of way, but because that is a tip of the iceberg phenomenon. That means there are far more hedgehogs in the countryside than there were. We now see more dead badgers, mesopredators on the road than hedgehogs. Well, that is a sign of an ecosystem out of balance. It's a sign of an enormous amount of badgers. That's just the tip of the iceberg. So the number of whale strandings is going up. The number of whales is going up. Is it anywhere near what it was in the 1700s? No. And to be honest, the only answer we can do with whales really is protect the marine environment and let them bounce back. Now, this can happen extraordinarily quickly. Off the coast of Alaska in the 1960s, there were just over a thousand humpback whales. When I visited in 2011, there were close to 20,000 humpback whales. Wow. Now, one of them is a beautiful, majestic creature swimming around in the ocean. 20,000 is a transformative ecosystem impact. And you go to the seabird colonies off the coast of Alaska, and the, the, the seabirds there are not declining. Now, I, I, the obvious answer is well, of course, they have more fish to eat. But the more profound answer is that they are supported and their habitat is maintained and created by whales. So, for example, the tufted puffin and the horn puffin of Alaska, again, they are feeding on sand eels. The sand eels are feeding on zooplankton and phytoplankton, but that entire system is supercharged by the presence of 20,000 humpbacks. Now, that's happened incredibly quickly. That's happened in 50 years. So within 50 years of just protecting the marine environment, we don't need to be towing any whales across the channel. We don't need to be intervening in the way we'd have to intervene if we want the links back in Scotland. The ocean is very good at rewilding itself. And, I mean, I'm wondering about the impact of climate change and, and, and ocean warming on that population. Will those whales be able to adapt? Because obviously that is a is a real that's a real issue, isn't it? Because we are that's one of our major concerns is that the the, the rising level of the ocean due to ocean warming. Well, this is the interesting thing because of ocean warming, a lot of the phytoplankton and diatoms in particular are pushing northwards. Now, the best way to stop them pushing northwards is to anchor their distribution with iron. The best way to anchor their distribution with iron is to have whales. whales. Now, it depends. It is is a circular problem. But the great thing is that while phytoplankton follow whales, whales don't follow phytoplankton, they follow fish. So what we may see in time is a trophic recovery whereby the whales follow the fish, vector iron into the photic layer, and basically drag the phytoplankton bioabundance back south hopefully off our coastal colonies, hopefully in time to save our puffins. That might sound completely far-fetched, but if fundamentally there are only very few ways of saving seabirds, you have to save their food. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, with sand eels, they are still prone to overfishing, but actually when we look at sand eel decline, the biggest problem is ocean warming. Yeah. The yeah. biggest problem within ocean warming is the diatoms of the, the zooplankton are pushing further north. The only thing we can do about that now is encourage whales. There may still not be enough, but it is the best available solution that we have to saving the oceans and to saving the puffin. Well, I'm signed up for saving the whale. My first introduction to conservation more years ago than I'm prepared to admit was the Save the Whale campaign <laughs> with Friends of the Earth. Um, every, I mean, there's, it's hard not to love whales. I know that there is still some there are still some communities around the world that, that choose to, to kill and possibly eat these magnificent creatures, but it's hard not to love them. 
for some people, it's much harder to love some of those other keystone species that you talk about, you know, particularly lynx and wolves. And they're always, I mean, there was just a Twitter spat just this weekend about the lynx. Somebody was raving about having seen a lynx in a, I think it was down in Devon. And they were saying, well, actually, the, the problem with, with lynx is that, you know, they are great predators. They are going to destroy parts of, of the other ecosystems. They'll eat small mammals. What is the argument for lynx? Because you've mentioned the rich man's playground idea, which is this point wasn't it about fencing off large parts of Scotland to introduce lynx and wolves why are they important and how can we do that safely without damaging you know other species in the system well lynx and wolves are very different because there's no denying that wolves would have social impacts upon sheep farming that probably are quite profound um so there's a time scale issue here um, and they have done, haven't they, where they have introduced wolves back, reintroduced they, they, wolves they places have, in you, like Scandinavia and things. Never to, the, never to the degree that it hasn't been possible to continue farming, but wolves are a different animal. They're a social animal um, and a more complex animal, and they need vast areas, and they're not afraid of going into open habitats, uh, all, all of which means that probably, you know, we're, we're not going to be really seriously talking about wolves for, for 20 to 30 years or more. Um which is why in Cornerstones I dwell much more heavily on the links. Um, the, the ecological impacts of links will be absolutely profound. Um, we have amongst certainly the top five problems in this country is deer. We have an absolute catastrophic rodent level overabundance of deer, roe deer in particular being, you know, 97% of the prey of links in, in many studies is, is roe deer. So they, they don't really bother with small mammals because they have quite a large metabolism to feed. Um, they can, of course, take small animals, but generally large predators take prey that is, is, is aligned to their, to their dietary and calorific requirements. We are seeing in many of our woodlands, from the Forest of Dean to, to, to Scotland, more pertinently for lynx, um, a complete inability for woodland to regenerate. I mean, you can't exaggerate the, the severity of that problem. If there is no next generation of trees... We're all stuffed. Mm. Um, it's a pretty major problem, not only whether you're a marsh titter or a nightingale or a garden warbler um, or a, a black grouse or a capercalium, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, no new woodlands will establish. We will not be able to sequester carbon with native trees unless they're all in horrendous plastic tree guards, which defeats the object, of course, because they require fossil fuels to be made in the first place. All of these problems um, can in large remote woodland areas eventually be solved by the reintroduction of the links, not as a not as a, a magic bullet. And of course there are many areas like the New Forest, too many roads, too many people, too many dog walkers that mm. you know sadly mm. will never be suitable for links. And we will have to be the proxy predator, uh, whether that's fox management or whether that is deer deer control. But there are other areas, uh, the Spey Valley, the Caledonian Forest, that are eminently suitable for links. Um, the other very important role that lynx carry out is that they are the natural predator of the fox. Um, whether people like foxes or not is a sort of a sentimental point, but from an ecosystem point, foxes are effectively designed, as it were, to be eaten by lynx and by wolves. When the wolves turned up in Yellowstone, the coyote population crashed, the population of brown nesting birds went through the roof. Why? Coyotes eat eggs. Wolves don't bother with eggs, but they do bother with coyotes. They remove the coyotes and the groundless and bird populations go up. This is why you can go to somewhere like Belarus and in a, in a forest meadow full of trees where you're told that you can't possibly have curlews or groundless birds, red grouse, black grouse. You have loads of them because the mesopredators are kept in check. And this works in two ways. 
physical, actual predation, as in foxes being killed by lynx. And foxes always quite lit- probably literally looking over their shoulders um, because they are there's the fear factor. Now, the fear factor does two things. It keeps deer on the move, so they can't destroy trees because they're constantly moving. It's very well documented in Yellowstone with wolves and in, in Eastern Europe with lynx. And secondly, mesopredators, predators, foxes, but particularly badgers, which I'll come on to in a minute, lovely looking animals, but devastating for ground nesting birds, being predated by lynx are constantly also moved around the landscape. Foxes become refugees in the landscape, in a woody landscape. They become, uh, they breed at a much lower density and they have much lower breeding success because lynxes keep coming along and eating their cubs. So, um, and then, then you come to species like the badger. We have an extraordinarily unnatural abundance of badgers in, in Britain, which is unrightly, in my view, celebrated. I mean, whether something looks cute should not be something that informs an argument as important as is our ecosystem in balance. And it, badgers are quite rare in the uh, Nalaboki forest of Belarus because they are hunted mainly as cubs by lynx and wolf in tandem. So if you're if you're a badger, you you don't have a particularly good time, and occasionally then a bear can come through the ceiling. So these these two meso predators, um, badgers and foxes, are des- designed, as it were, to be regulated by lynxes and wolves. Now we don't have those species. So if you introduce lynx into a forest environment, say in Caledonian forest, it may eat the odd capercaillie, but it's going to take out a significant quantity of pine martins. It's going to take out a significant quantity of badger cubs, and it's going to displace or take out a significant quantity or majority of foxes. So the beneficial impacts of lynx for ground nesting birds in woodland is pretty profound because it's not bothering to go around looking for, for, for highly you know cryptic female capercaillies or black grouse sitting on their nests. It, it's, it's looking for the prey that it knows how to find. In some places in Europe, a third of lynx died is, is Eurasian fox. So I can see that would upset quite a lot of people doing that. I mean, not least Chris Packham, who's, who's passionate about foxes. You know, the badger lobby is quite strong. The fox lobby is quite strong. I, I can see that people will be concerned that, that, that we'll be, you know, wiping out those other species. I mean, is there any danger of that happening? There's, well, the, the, uh, come to the upset in a minute. The lynx don't, predators don't wipe out their prey. I mean, that this has been proven across the world from the Serengeti with lions, wildebeest lions have never conspired to wipe out the wildebeest. Lynx will never wipe out the fox. What they would do is they would change its behavior and they would reduce its numbers to natural. Just because the numbers have been unnatural for centuries um, doesn't make that a good thing. And anyone with an ecosystem understanding like Chris Packham certainly should, under, should understand that. Um, obviously, you know, the fact is we've had these these sort of animals immortalized from Wind in the Willows to, to our sort of children's books. Um, but the bottom line is every day, you know, we celebrate birds of prey. Well, what are they doing? They're going out and killing. You know, we, we all love, you know, the sight of a sparrowhawk. It's still tearing little blue tits to pieces. And of course, I've covered the, the role of birds of prey in Cornerstones as well. I've talked about the way that actually um, apex avian predators like the goshawk in eating sparrowhawks act to protect or jays and magpies, in particular in the New Forest Act, to protect very small birds like orfinches. So, you know, a lot of people, are, okay, you may say they're attached to the fox and the badger, but they're also very attached to the woodcock. They're attached to the wood warbler. They're attached to the lapwing, um, a species that gets absolutely decimated uh, by, by foxes and gets decimated from the air by carrion crows, which, of course, are looked after by a healthy presence of goshawks. 
So what predators do, um, apex predators, avian and terrestrial, is they regulate and protect the ecosystem by taking out the mesopredators and protecting many species that a lot of British people care deeply about. So once that's fully understood, and that's one of my main reasons for writing Cornerstones, is it isn't understood, then people may begin to think very differently about these animals. And you've got to remember, from a practical land point of view, I mean, there's the public, and then there are foresters, farmers, and landowners who, who have no sentimental attachment to deer because deer destroy their livelihoods. If you're a forester, a roe deer can, can ruin a tim- your timber business. Well, Britain needs timber. We need to grow trees for timber as well as for naturalistic um, purposes. And we need to grow food. I mean, we need farmers. Uh, I've never said otherwise. And um, <laughs> deer can destroy crops. So it's funny when I speak to landowners, which I do, do daily, really, and I explain these things to them, they're actually extremely receptive. What would you rather have? Um, an army of deer um, basically denuding the landscape or two or three incredibly secretive cats that you're never going to see. Um, even in Derek Gow's lynx enclosure, which is twice the size of my garden, you, you don't see the lynx. I mean, they're hiding literally about 10 feet away. From I think somebody saw one at the weekend, hence the conversation on Twitter. But yes, yeah, you're but absolutely right. They are. That enclosure. And where they are, are the others? They are very, very, yeah, secretive. And I remember we talked to the Caledonian Lynx Project for, on the pod some time ago and, and talked about the fact that you, they're very rare and special species. Rose, you've been lucky enough to see wild kites, red kites feeding, haven't you, in, in places. How do you react to some of the comments that, that Ben's that Ben's making and some of the kind of arguments he's putting forward in Cornerstones? So I think that um, there is a, so so when it comes to foxes and badgers, that may well be the, the little uh, interaction people have with nature. So especially foxes, um, as people might have a local fox in their in their street that they're they're quite fond of. Um, But I think it speaks to the uh, wider disconnection with nature very often um, because, uh, you know, you do see such limited species. You might see sparrows, you might see foxes. um, Unless you're lucky enough to be near a wetlands, you're very unlikely to see a wide range of birds in your garden if you're in an urban centre. So, I, I do think that while it may be sad to think about, you know, seeing fewer badgers or, or, or fewer foxes, a, a wider variety of, uh, of, of, you know, of creatures, uh, uh, greater biodiversity it is something that actually uh, when if it could be implemented would, would end up being very appealing. And I, I read a book recently um, called. Uh, foxes unearthed about the kind of cultural relationship we have with foxes and how uh, sort of divided we are about them in in many ways um, but I think yeah I, I do think that um, we we have that disconnection it would be it, it, getting that message out to the wider public is, is a really important thing and why why books like Ben's are so important. Mm. And of course, it's a balance, isn't it? It's nature. It's nature on nature. So it isn't someone going out gassing a badger or shooting, worse still, shooting and not quite killing the badger on the badger cull. It's actually a natural balance of predator and prey that, that helps that I, ecosystem I think, recover. I think there's a very big difference between celebrating nature looking after itself, you know, um, in the same way that, you know, when I used to have to film cheetah hunts, I mean, you you still feel and empathise with the, the gazelle getting eaten, but you wouldn't want to step in and shoot the cheetahs. And as mm-hmm. Craig Bennett has said at the Wildlife Trust, if we had the lynx here now, 
who would go out and remove it? And the answer is maybe a very few, you know, gamekeepers. I met a lot of gamekeepers who are very enthused by, by the prospect of lynx. And, you know, even even farmers understand, I think, that this is an animal that really stays in woodland and, and that they, they might not strongly like it, but they probably wouldn't go out and shoot it either. Mm. And a lot of landowners actively want lynx on, on their land to, to mm. help help regulate both both from an economic point of view, but also just from, a, from an ecosystem point of view. But of course, you know, there'll be many, many areas of the country. I mean, people always picture suddenly this animal is going to be everywhere. Well, it's highly specialised. It's probably going to do extremely well in the Caledonian forest, maybe attain a uh, eventual population of 50, 60 breeding pairs plus plus young animals. Um, you know, there, there is genuine possibility in northern England as, as, as well. But, you know, the vast majority, you know, I'm not going to be suddenly watching the Bristol fox in my garden and a lynx is going to drop out of the, you know, of the tree and nail it. So I, I think <laughs> we've got to remember that Britain is a big place. And what we're talking about, a lot of these species, you know, Dalmatian pelican, for example, is a species that would do extremely well in the Norfolk Broads, the Somerset Levels and the marshes of Kent, and possibly the Humber Estuary. But it's not, it's not going to turn up on our, on our fish ponds. Um, and and duck ponds in small villages. So I think a genuine, genuinely, we're talking about the right species, the right time, the right place. But one animal that we could have everywhere, even in the suburbs, as they do in Bavaria, would be, be would be the beaver. Mm, bring back the beaver. We just yeah, we need beavers everywhere. We know that we've we've often made the case case for beavers on the program, and you know, and Derek's been with us and talked about beavers, and they are they are truly wonderful. Can I maybe move just to a slightly wider context about the, the kind of rise in the, the nature writing in books? And you know, this is your third book Ben and you know you've a background in conservation and filmmaking and you're now working you know full-time in conservation um why is it do you think you know both of you Ben and Rose why is it do you think there are so many books out now about the wild world about nature about conservation about our landscape is it because we're desperate to know more or is it because there's some kind of proxy for actually taking action we'll read about it and that means we don't have to do anything about it I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's the second one. I think it's firstly people are realizing on mass that the the planet is in trouble. They're realizing Britain is far worse than the rest of the planet. There's a feeling of shame and wanting to do something about it. And you know, writing is doing something about it. I mean, you know, I I still find, you know, farmers phoning me up who've implemented my rebirding policies on Pembrokeshire potato farms. I had no idea they were reading my book. So it's not as if books are just, just displacement activities. They, they are actions in themselves, um, coupled with, with everything else. And there's a huge diversity of voices that I think, you know, someone said the other day, do we have too many nature books? I mean, you wouldn't say, you know, do we have too many books or do we have too much education? So I, I don't think we do. And I don't really think we have any writers even approaching it the same way. For example, you know, even if you take Cornerstones and George Monbiot's Regenesis, they're both, I suppose, inverted commas, rewilding books, but I don't think my book's anything like George's. And, you know, then we've got Sophie Pavel's lovely Forget-Me-Not, which is kind of like a personal journey based around climate change species. Um, you know, we've got some sort of sort of new traditional voices like Patrick Galbraith, who's saying, actually, you know, shooting everything's a great idea. That's how we're going to save the turtle dove, which is, you know, not, not a point of view I agree with, but... You know, it's quite refreshing to see somebody from that sort of traditional shooting background getting involved as well. Um, so for me, it's a really positive and healthy thing. And But it does then need, you know, those ideas do then need to turn into hard realities on the land and and government policy. Mm. 
Rose, what about your eco book club? I mean, you run a book club at work. How are they responding? And and is it because they they want to know more or is it because it's just a nice recreational habit? Well, I think um, what I've been surprised at is how people have had their worldview totally turned around, actually. Um, so, you know, we we started with Wilding and we've since read books like Don't Economics and, and uh, the list goes on. Um, and actually, I think people have, it for, for many people, it's almost a, a wake up call that there is another world possible. And I think, I think people have noticed biodiversity loss in, in the last few years. I, I remember when I was a kid and there was that day at the end of summer and the flying ants would come out. And I, I haven't noticed that in, in many, many years. So I think people on a, on a personal level have, have noticed biodiversity loss and want to find out how to tackle that because one day it's the flying ants and the next day it's, it's everything else. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a disconnect between what's possible and what people are aware is possible. So, uh, you know, and I think people are looking for solutions and, and nature writing isn't new either. We had the, you know, we had the romantic poets, we had Humboldt um, and many travellers in the 19th century that were widely, wildly successful. So, so perhaps it's gone out of the mainstream and, and come back again. But I think people have always been interested in, in, um, in nature writing. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and that's a very good point. And I know Jim, who is our producer, who can't be with us today because he's got COVID, but is very keen to talk about one of his favourite books, which is indeed, you know, a much older book about nature writing from, from Gilbert White. So uh, you're right. So those books are acting both as as inspiration, but also as call to action, because I think it's fair to say, isn't it, Ben, you don't just want us to read Cornerstones. And of course, we're going to, and I'm waving my copy, and it is incredibly beautiful to look at. Um, you want us to take some action too, don't you? You want us to actually respond and start changing what we do and how we behave and put some pressure on policymakers and decision makers to do things differently. Yeah, I think education is important. I mean, most things I hear about the links from conservationists are actually ecologically incorrect. Like if you said that to somebody studying the animal in Belarus, they'd say, no, that's that's no, that's wrong. That's not how they behave. And, you know, actually, often it's often the conservation community that's grown up with protection and preservation and much more misinformed the landowners who are pretty savvy. They know what the lynx does. That's the, the pro. They know that it's good for deer numbers and foxes, but they also know that if they've got sheep, it's, it's bad news. And, you know, it's, I mean, they're, 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 they're largely speaking correct. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of it's about education. I'm not actually suggesting we bring back the wolf. What I'm suggesting is that if everyone knows exactly what wolves do, then they can weigh up the pros and the cons. And I've gone into the cons. I, I've gone into the number of sheep killed by lynx in various different farmland systems. Norway is particularly bad because they have a wood pasture system where sheep go into the middle of woods and then do quite frequently get eaten. In Germany, they have a sheep farming system like we do. Um, where it's a field-based system and very little interaction because lynx hate coming into the open. It's thought they hate coming into the open because then the cubs get predated by wolves. So <laughs> they keep themselves to themselves. So, but, you know, there's no point lying to people and telling them things. You've got to tell them the pros and the cons. But most people, I, I don't think most conservationists have any idea what lynx actually do. I mean, Dr. Mark Avery, uh, very respected conservationist who's, you know, run the RSPB for for many years, um, read the book. And I yeah, even he I don't think had any idea that lynx could be good news for for Cap Cayley 
for Woodcock and for Wood Warbler. And mm-hmm. he's a lifelong conservationist. So for me, it's about educating people um, about what these animals do. And then at the very ambitious end, if people say, look, we know wolves are great, but we still just, just can't live with them, fair enough. But I've at least told them what they do. Yeah. And a lot of animals, um, you know, we know them. They're very familiar, like cattle and horses. But you ask people, what's the wild role of the horse in Britain? And they just look at you as if you're completely mental. Oh, well, what, what, you know, when it's not being ridden around or it's not on the race course, you know, what, what do you mean? <laughs> so, you know, I just want people, your education is a weapon. And yeah. then hopefully this will get into the hands of policymakers, which is what happened with rebirding, um, and hopefully make a difference. Yeah. And I'd be absolutely on bringing back the boar because there is nothing like a wild boar. They are just magnificent and extraordinary creatures. You're you're totally right. And and it's all about balance, isn't it? And I think the problem that we'd have, and we haven't touched on that other keystone species in your book, which is us humans, um, as the ultimate apex predator. A lot of it is about understanding and actually coming to accept that 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 nature and the balance of an ecosystem is quite raw. You know, you use the cheetah example. You know, I've got this in my garden. We've moved out into very wide part of the countryside. And my little terrors discovered that we've got moles and they are, you know, they are the one thing she's going after. And I came home and there was a dead mole on the lawn. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, oh no, something's died, but actually it's just that process, isn't it? It's just the, the, the balancing. I have to say at the moment, the moles are winning though, judging by the lumps on the lawn. Um, But we do have to understand that. We do have to understand that balance, don't we? And that balance of ecosystems. And, And that's why writing is so incredibly important. Um, it would be wonderful. I, you know, shouldn't ask an author to recommend another author, but you very generously already mentioned some books, Ben. It would be wonderful to get an idea of what your summer reading lists look like. Rose, what would be on your your list of the kind of top two or three that you'd recommend to pod listeners for the summer? So um, I've just started, so I can't give a proper review. Um, but uh, it's, so far, it's it's brilliant. Um, Charlotte McConaughey's Once There Were Wolves. Uh, which sort of imagines a future where uh, wolves are reintroduced into Scotland and there is a sort of mystery on the side. Um, but but I think I haven't seen much fiction, um, fiction nature writing, which is, so that's quite exciting. Great, wonderful. Wolves, music to Ben's ears. Another, one other that you might have read in your book group? Um, so the other one that we've read is Braiding Sweetgrass, which I'm sure many listeners have li- have read, um, but I can't recommend it enough. Um and uh, kind of, again, looking at our, our place within the ecosystem um, and just a total inspiration to how we could how we could live in, in harmony with nature and as stewards of nature. Thank you. They're great suggestions. And Ben, would you have would you have one that you might recommend to people? Well, I just draw, you know, to attention one of the greatest conservationists, living conservationists, Roy Dennis, um, who maybe isn't quite as well known amongst the wider public as Isabella Tree, Charlie Bowlett, Nepp, of course, uh, Derek Gow with his kind of larger-than-life personality. I mean, Derek's books are fantastic, don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, Roy has been very successfully rewilding and restoring nature from the white-tailed eagle to the osprey longer than I've been alive. And many of these things we completely take for granted, like, you know, going to see white-tailed eagles really emanate from this one person's vision. And, you know, it's a reminder both of how inefficient some of our large nature bodies are and how extraordinarily efficient um, certain individuals can be, where, you know, Dr. Carl Jones at Double, for example, inspirational conservationist who's probably single-handedly saved over 10 species from global extinction. Uh, But Roy's had an absolutely huge 
role to play in actually getting this done and not, you know, turning it from sort of hot air anyone because I wouldn't have been nice to rewild. I mean, that's easy. Anyone can do that. But Roy's been doing it. And that, for me, gives his books a huge gravitas. Um, so Restoring the Wild, True Stories of Rewilding Britain's Skies, Woods and Waterways would be my top for the summer reading list. Thank you. Um, absolutely brilliant suggestions. And I'm going to... Um as is the way, I really just want to be on the book programme, don't I? I'm going to be reading uh, Notes from Walnut Tree Farm by Roger Deacon, which and, and, and Roger died back in 2006, but it's based on his farm up here in Suffolk and it is a beautiful book and it's been by my, by my bed for a while, so I'm going to take it down to the beach and to the hammock with me over the summer to try and get it finished. Thank you both so much. It's been absolutely wonderful. And, and Ben, huge congratulations on the book. I hope it does really, really well. And um, I certainly think that you've, you know, there are some arguments here that we need to listen to and it will be wonderful to come back and have another conversation with you in a few months time when we can assess just how much impact it's had. Um, it will be great to have you back on the pod. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been, as always, delightful to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Rose, thanks for coming along. It's great. And I really, you know, hand, hats off to you for running an eco book club. And it's not an easy thing to do to corral people to, to read and then talk about books. But but the more the more that's written and the more that's read, the, the more I think we'll make progress. So thank you too for sharing your suggestions. It's been lovely to have you along. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. And um, my thanks, obviously, to Beth, our producer, and to Jim, our executive producer, who will be sharing his book choices with you when he's recovered from COVID, and he's going to patch that in at the end. Um, I hope everyone has a wonderful summer and gets a chance to dip into some of those recommendations and suggestions, which we will tweet. Um, so if you didn't catch them when you were listening, they will be out on Twitter. Um, and we'll be away for a while over the summer break, um, but we'll also be tweeting some of our reads and recommendations throughout the summer. We'd love to hear from you. So please either uh, get in touch via Twitter or better still subscribe to the pod on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so thanks for listening and goodbye and have a wonderful summer. Hi, it's Jim here, Planet Pod's executive producer. As Amanda said, I was really sorry not to have been able to join the conversation with Ben and Rose, but I did want to highlight one of my recommended summer, or indeed any time reads. This book is a little bit older than those that Ben and Rose mentioned, and it's Gilbert White's Natural History of Selborne. It was first published in 1789, and it's never been out of print since. Gilbert White was probably the first person to observe the natural world for real. It was written as a series of letters in which Gilbert gives us an account of the appearance, the habits and the habitats of the flora and fauna around him where he lived in Selborne in Hampshire. He was an inspiration to many who followed in his footsteps and we owe much to his fascinating observations, from the mysteries of migration to the habits of an eccentric tortoise. His natural world was one which was so much richer in biodiversity than ours and one which we all need to do our best to recover. And it's a book I would thoroughly recommend to everyone. Hope you have a fantastic summer. Stay safe, stay cool. Thanks for supporting Planet Pod. And we look forward to catching up with you when we all get back. Oh, 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 oh,